And of course, that is an incredibly um, well-timed <laughs> prize, well-deserved prize. I, we really have to thank John for, um, for coming today to deliver Medical Grand Rounds. And, and uh, this is a Grand Rounds that's co-sponsored by the Department of Medicine and the Weight and Wellness Center. And I have the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Batsis, who is really a dear friend and colleague. Um, Dr. Baxis completed his undergraduate studies at McGill University and in, earned his medical degree from the University of Dublin Trinity College. He did his residency in internal medicine, a fellowship in geriatric medicine, and he earned a certificate in translational science activities at the Mayo Clinic. And then he was recruited to the section of general internal medicine here at DHMC in 2008 and has really become an inspiration to all of us in the section since that time. He's much respected for his clinical acumen and his devotion to person-centered care for some of our most frail and complex patients. He's a dedicated teacher and role model for students and for residents in the classroom and the clinic and as a research mentor. He's an exemplary clinical scholar who has already published more than 80 peer-reviewed publications at this early point in his career, primarily focusing on understanding health risks and identifying strategies to improve care for vulnerable elderly populations. He's active on national committees with both the American Geriatric Society and the Obesity Society and has served as a reviewer for more than 30 national and international journals. At DHMC, he served on the Development Committee and is the Director for Clinical Research for the Weight and Wellness Center and is a steering member for the Population Health Co-Laboratory in Primary Care. John has funding through the National Institute on Aging to investigate strategies to improve wellness in older adults with obesity using mobile health technologies. He was recently recognized by the American Geriatric Society with a new investigator award for his research on older adults with obesity. And before inviting him to share some of his knowledge on that topic, I want to thank John for stepping in today um, with a smile, I will say, um, on extremely short notice to present this morning's Medical Grand Rounds. This is such a perfect example of who he is. On a personal level, I'm continually impressed by his selfless contributions to the section of general internal medicine and to every endeavor to which he commits himself. His day-to-day -day actions reflect his genuine interest in improving the work experience of his peers and the career trajectories of our junior faculty and other learners in our section. He's an, he has an incredible work ethic and an uncompromising dedication to doing what is right for patients, for learners, for colleagues, and for his coworkers. We are so fortunate to have him on our faculty and as our presenter this morning. Welcome, John. So can you all hear me? Yeah. Great. Wow. Um, thank you for that. I'm speechless. Thank you, Kelly, for that introduction. And it's really a, a delight and pleasure to be uh, speaking to all of you here this morning. And particularly, I know we have a, there's a competing session as well. So I am very passionate about the topic of uh, geriatric obesity. And I'm hoping to impart uh, this morning to you uh, some of the work that I've done and some of the uh, future directions that I'm planning on taking uh, in, this, uh, in this realm. Uh, as Kelly mentioned, I'm funded by the NIA and uh, some uh, internal funding as well. And I do want to acknowledge uh, some of the support from our Health Promotion Research Center and uh, through uh, Dartmouth Synergy as well. Um, learning objectives are out in front of you, so I'm not going to go uh, reading those. But what I do want, did want to do uh, this morning is really kind of present a case-based uh, discussion in some ways. So I'm going to be presenting four cases, first of which is a 76-year-old uh, patient of mine. He presents uh, to the clinic for his uh, routine annual wellness visit and really has no significant complaints. You can see, though, from his past history, he has considerable number of comorbidities, all of which are actually reasonably well controlled, but on a number of medications as well. He doesn't smoke, he's quite active, really uh, doing uh, quite, quite a bit of uh, physical activity, and uh, you can see from his vitals uh, are looking pretty good. So I'm going to present two scenarios here for that patient. Scenario one is a patient with a weight of almost 90 kilograms, height of 1.6 meters, and a BMI of 30. In scenario two, the ge this gentleman has a BMI of 23.4. So my question to you is, should you counsel these patients on weight loss? So in scenario one, who would counsel this patient on weight loss based on what you know right now? Okay. And how about in scenario two? Okay. <laughs> 
Stay tuned. There's, there's a catch to this. You probably get that. So what happens if this same patient did not take any medications, had no metabolic abnormalities, and his BMI was 27.6? Would you counsel this patient on weight loss? Anyone? Okay. So a little bit of preamble. As a geriatrician, I love this slide. It'll keep me in business going forward. But we really have a geriatric tsunami. Patients are living longer. Baby boomers are entering the golden years. And by the year 2030, over 20% of our population will be uh, over the age of 65. Notwithstanding this is that we all know, we've all heard extensively, the prevalence of obesity in the general population has really increased considerably in the last four to five decades. What we haven't heard much is what is occurring in the older adult years, those aged 60 or 65 and above. And really, these trends that are observed in the in middle-aged cohorts and middle-aged population are actually paralleled to those observed in an elderly, elderly population. And you can see current estimates in 2014 from NHANE survey really uh, uh, demonstrate that 37% of males and 39.4% of females are classified as having obesity using BMI. Okay. So I'm asked this question quite often. Should we be treating obesity in elderly patients? And there are a lot of controversies. These are some of that I, that I hear and that are uh, discussed in the literature. Older adults have limited lifespans, even when they're not obese. Just because you're an older adult doesn't mean you're frail or weak. Patients who have obesity maybe uh, may have succumbed to the complications thereof of obesity earlier on in life. So if, if you have obesity and you're an older adult, maybe you have some inherent resistance that's making, uh, that's, uh, that's making you more uh, resistant to the effects of uh, adiposity. And then lastly, excess fat actually has less of an effect on mortality in, in older adults, and I'll show you some of that data. So the so what question is, as a geriatrician, we, care, we really care about physical function and quality of life in older adults, in addition to mortality and some uh, cardiometabolic outcomes. This study here really demonstrates a lifespan approach of older adults with obesity, meaning the longer you have are you classified as having being overweight and or obesity over your lifespan, the higher the risk of incident disability in your older years. So someone who is lean, fit, very active, has no weight issues up until their 50s or 60s, for instance, and then gains a precipitous amount of weight will actually distally have less of a risk of incident disability as compared to someone who has had uh, a longer uh, duration of uh, being overweight, classified as overweight or uh, obese. So we all know the relationships between BMI and mortality. High BMI, bad. Well, older adults, this relationship is actually not as clear-cut as it is seen in larger cohorts of, of the general population. This is a very robust meta-analysis that examined over 197,000 patients. And you, the inflection point at which mortality started to increase in older adults was a BMI of 33. So, they, so once you hit a BMI of 33 as an older adult, your mortality risk increased. What I think is interesting here, that I want a take-home point that I want you to be uh, aware of, is look at the lower lowest risk of mortality. The lowest risk of mortality in this uh, this study was a BMI of 27.5, classified really technically according to WHO standards as overweight. So you can see BMI of 25 to 28, not as clear cut. You know, that's really the lowest risk of mortality. But the, we know that a BMI of over 33, at least in this study, demonstrates high risk of mortality. And why is this? Well, there is a, really a shift of, B, of BMI um, trends as one ages. So BMI, weight divided by height in meters squared. Weight, we know there's a natural increase of gaining weight with age. And height, if you think about we lose height as we age as well. So that ratio does change. So how good is BMI? 
in terms of assessing adiposity. This is a study that uh, our group performed and published last year that really, they used NHANES data so you, and classified the gold standard of adiposity using DEXA. And we classified um, a, a body fat of over 25 in males and over 35 in females. And then we looked at a BMI of over 30 to see what the sensitivity and specificity of identifying adiposity in older adults. That's the key here. So those over the age, we classified older adults in this cohort according to NHANES standards, which is over the age of 60. The sensitivity in both males and females was really low, as you can see here from, from the data. And when you, we stratified the data according to age category, we found that the older you got, the lower the sensitivity of BMI in ad identifying adiposity in, in older adults. So not a great marker. So, why are we still using BMI? That's a question that I ask myself almost every day. Well, it's easy, it's cheap, it's ubiquitously used in clinical practice. But the caveats to this, it has poor sensitivity, it really is a crude index of adiposity. I haven't talked about ethnic specific values, but those need to be kept in mind in uh, non-homogeneous populations. And measuring fat mass is really not practical. Currently, no uh, insurance or uh, funding source will cover assessment of body composition outside usually executive health programs at this stage. So let's come back to these cases here. Scenario one, should we treat, him, uh, treat this patient? I would argue yes. BMI of over th of 35 and with metabolic abnormalities. Scenario two and scenario three are a little different. I would argue maybe, and the reason for that is I would argue that we need to measure waist circumference in these patients or body fat if, if you have that available. And if they're higher than these cutoffs, the, the metabolic syndrome cutoffs and body fat cutoffs, then there is a impetus to, to suggest that we should be uh, counseling these patients on weight loss. And why? This is the, the concept of normal weight obesity. Uh, these are patients who walk in your clinic who have a normal BMI, but may have elevated central adiposity or elevated body fat. And what we have found, again, using epidemiological data, these patients are at high risk of cardiometabolic disease, mortality, and disability. So just because they have a normal BMI walking into your clinic doesn't mean that, they should, that we shouldn't be thinking one step further. And this is just some data that demonstrates the association of waist circumference with mortality. The relationship weakens with age, but it's still highly significant. And the association of waist circumference with uh, incident disability as measured by either gait speed, basic activities of daily living, or instrumental activities of daily living. Uh, so we know that waist circumference and central adiposity is not a good thing in older adults. So, key points, that I, take home points that I want you to take home. One, BM, in older adults, BMI has a poor sensitivity for measuring adiposity. And it really should be used cautiously if a BMI is under 35 when you see a patient in front of you in clinical practice. And then secondly, waist circumference or body fat really can be helpful in further stratifying your cohort. Waist circumference is easy. It's a tape measure. It takes probably 30 seconds to do in clinical practice. Granted, busy cl clinical practices, but it may be, provide incremental information that could help you in managing your patient population. Okay, moving on. Case two. This is a 69-year-old gentleman of mine. Literally, these were the two complaints that he had. I'm not eating a lot, and I can't lose weight. And B, doc, Please help me lose weight. So you can see extensive past medical history, really multimorbidity. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink any alcohol, had good social support at home. He sneaks food at home. So he says to his wife, no, I'm not eating. But then next thing you know, he's con he confides to me that he, that he sneaks his Twinkies at night. <laughs> he does absolutely no physical activity, and you can see he weighs 315 pounds, a BMI of almost 44. So what did I share with this, per this patient? And what I want to share with you is that caloric needs 
drop with age. So this is uh, data from IOM, which demonstrates that the number of calories that a middle-aged individual needs is, is actually higher than that of an older adult. And a lot of this is due to the reductions, the, the inverse exponential reduction in uh, basal metabolic rate that's observed uh, with age. So your metabolism drops, and with that, concurrently, your caloric intake needs. So when I see this, saw this patient, what did I do? I actually just started a conversation. Really, what can we do to get you healthy, and what are your goals? And it really doesn't necessarily always need to concentrate on the number. And I really want to emphasize that because I can speak from our national, the national societies are really trying to think about moving away from a number and, moving, and concentrating more on, a, on the behavior. You have control over your behaviors. You don't have control over a number. And in, particularly in older adults, I would advocate that the focus should be on function and quality of life. So a goal is, can you walk, I want to walk around the block. I want to play with my grandchildren versus I want to lose 25 pounds or 50 pounds or I want to be, go down to my college weight, which, again, I advise when patients uh, say that, just, that's not something that you want to even go down. You want small little goals. And then you can use confidence and importance scales. Uh, this is some of the work that John Wasson uh, from our, our Centers of Aging had, had, has, had coined years back. And use, you know, concepts about uh, and using a motivational interviewing within uh, the session. We know that there is actually a study that was just published uh, in the late fall. 30 seconds of brief, brief, and, uh, brief obesity intervention actually was associated with some degree of improvement in, of, uh, of weight and uh, function in, older, in, uh, in the general population. So it can be done. So let me focus a little bit on older adults. Um, when I view the patient in, the, in, the, in front of me in the clinic, I want to see, are there any red flags? And these are the list of the red flags, and I'm going to really focus on medications and diet and social history, because um, these are two huge issues, generally as a, a, in, a, in our geriatric practice, but in particular in managing an older adult with obesity. So these are the typical obesogenic medications, and it is a word, I did look that up, uh, that are very commonly prescribed in older adults. And you can see these are these all lead to weight gain. I looked when I when I put together this and when I you know and I look at this list, I'm like, yeah, this is the typical patient that walks in my in my door. So, what to do? Well, you should see if you can find medications that we can substitute that are not as uh, obesogenic. And we are lucky in, in our primary care practice, we have an embedded clinical pharmacist. So we are able to work with her to be able to reorganize and, and uh, consolidate and substitute medications. And that's something that, um, that is encouragingly, in, in, increasingly being encouraged in, in geriatric practices. And this, this is a, a unique example of where we can involve a clinical pharmacist. One thing that is often overlooked is food and financial security in older adults. And as a geriatrician, we think about this, the social components to health and the social determinants of health and how they can impact one's, uh, one's health. And obesity is no exception. So these are some simple questions that any clinician can really ask. Where's your food coming from? Is it Meals on Wheels? Is it family? Is it the grocery store? Who purchases your food? Very often, when there's a significant socioeconomic disparities, Older adults may actually choose to pay their bills or health care costs over buying nutritious food. And, that's, and that, can, that, again, is pro-obesogenic. Uh, and this is where really having a team-based care, home health care managers, and partnership with a primary care clinician is really uh, vital in overcoming and addressing some of these barriers. I don't think I need to share with the audience the benefits of, uh, of dietary and dietitian consultation really needs to be a longitudinal role. It's, it, I, I personally feel that a once-off visit is not overly helpful, and it needs to be on a regular basis. But this is really where a dietitian can really impart their expertise uh, in reviewing records, helping with monitoring, and really providing some basic strategies to overcoming uh, 
some of the barriers that patients face. So which diets should we uh, recommend? And there are a plethora of diets available, as we all know. I'm, the way I usually practice is I usually like to kind of get one or two things that I'm very comfortable with and then kind of uh, disseminate that to my patients. And these are the two that in, in patients who have metabolic abnormalities or, uh, or, and ob or obesity, I usually recommend either the DASH diet or the Mediterranean diet. There's ample evidence that that's demonstrates that these two diets can be helpful not only from a weight standpoint, but a physical function, cardiometabolic abnormalities as well. <coughs> Often older adults, and I'll, I'll come to this a little bit later, don't consume as much protein as they should. Current recommended daily allowance really leads to reductions in muscle protein synthesis. So during such efforts, you need to push protein. And ideally, again, working with a dietitian, you can increase protein supplementation within your, di your diet to be able to counter some of the side effects, which I'll, I'll, I'll come to in a few minutes. Um, monitoring works. It's a pain. I can, I can say that with, from personal experience, but when people monitor, and irrespective of the method used, paper, smartphone, you name it, it works. The challenge is maintaining that over time. And that's what's really what is, what, is, what is very difficult. Okay, busy slide. I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk you through this. And I, this is a really key study that really emphasized the importance of physical function and healthy habits in older adults. So what these authors did is they used the cardiovascular health study. And they identified people in 1989, and then they looked at mortality distally uh, in 2015. And what they found, what they wanted to do is to identify their behaviors at baseline. And what I mean by that, elevated BMI, did they walk regularly, self-reported, and did they have a low healthy eating index, which is reflective of a poor diet quality. And what they ended up doing is that they wanted to see what the total duration was, what the pr proportion of years of, that were disability-free based on these behaviors. And not surprisingly, those who walked a lot, those who did not have an elevated BMI, and those with a good healthy eating index, so good dietary quality, actually had a lower number, the ratio of, of uh, years with disability in terms of their overall survival. So of whatever years remaining, they were more functional in those years. So this is really, I think, helpful epidemiological data that really suggests, even in older adults, the importance of healthy behavioral change. Um, so transitioning a little bit is, what about weight loss? So I've kind of shared with you the problems of obesity, what diets to recommend, but what about some of the, the trial data? Well, we, we did, performed a systematic review um, that was published last year, and we're really disappointed to see the paucity of trials that are out there, which is probably good for, for my research, our research program, considering where we want to head, but there were we really only identified six randomized controlled trials in older adults with, uh, with obesity. What we did find, though, was that combined diet and exercise, and I'll show you some of this data, led to improvements of physical performance, quality of life, more so than either diet alone or exercise alone. So the com combining diet and exercise is key to improving physical function and quality of life in older adults. <clears throat> I consider uh, Dennis Villarreal's study in 2011 that was in the New England probably the, one of the gold standard clinical trials of uh, obesity in older adults. What he, he performed a 52-week randomized controlled trial in older adults, frail older adults, and restricted their diet, had a weekly dietitian visit, and had them lose about 10% of their baseline weight. They exercised regularly under the supervision of a physical therapist, and both aerobic but also resistance, flexibility, and balance as well. 
what he found was the bottom two lines kind of mimic each other. So this is the mean change of weight. And what, what he found was those who diet, and the diet only group and the diet and exercise group really lost almost the same amount of weight. Though the control group and the exercise only group, they didn't, it didn't budge. So really, even in older adults, exercise alone did not, in a 52-week trial, did not lead to any weight reduction. But what was really key here is, and I'm going to refer you to the last column, is that those who had combined diet and exercise had much better physical performance status. And they had improved gait speed, which is an important geriatric marker of physical function. And then more, most importantly, when you diet alone, when you have a only a diet, you lose both bone density and lean mass. And the diet and exercise group actually blunted this response. Didn't eliminate it, but it blunted it considerably. You'll see why it's important in a minute. Lastly, clinical trials and in the relationship with overall mortality, not as robust. This is a systematic review, again, published last, uh, two years ago, that really demonstrated a 15% reduction in overall mortality. Caveats here, not a lot of studies. Confidence intervals really abutting one, and uh, the mean follow-up was only 27 months. So I think we still have work to be able to prove that it, it alters uh, long-term risk of death, but we, we do know that weight loss does improve physical function, which is a key geriatric uh, outcome. So a couple key points here. Uh, nutritional requirements and basal metabolic rate actually drop with age. There is a reimbursable benefit in primary care. I'm not going to get into that today, but I'm happy to, to discuss that uh, offline. Um, treating obesity is actually safe, effective, and it really does improve geriatric outcomes. Recommended between 500 and 750 kilocalories, probably more on the 500 side. And undertaking a comprehensive geriatric assessment is really helpful, particularly in identifying social and functional factors in this population. Okay. Case three, can't I just diet? It's hard enough to do physical activity. Quote, so again, multiple medical problems. She has excellent social support, BMI of 37. But you'll see at the bottom here, her uh, recent DEXA scan demonstrated uh, a T-score of minus 1.8 and her, her calculated FRAC score, uh, which is a 10-year risk of uh, developing a fracture, was 2.8% at hip and 18% uh, for any type of uh, fragility fracture. So I, I shared with you the benefits of weight loss on physical function, quality of life, and uh, mortality. But what about the harms of weight loss? And this is something that comes up, again, quite often. So we know that weight loss reduces fat, but it also reduces bone mass and muscle mass. These are very key uh, determinants in one's overall function as an, as an elder. And it's really about balancing because you want to lose that fat, but you don't want to. You, but by doing that, you disturb homeostasis, and that it impairs one's uh, ability to um, to mitigate the loss of muscle mass and bone that occurs. So we know that weight loss does reduce bone density. That is, this has been very clearly demonstrated in the literature, um, and we also know that adding resistant exercise to uh, such efforts actually can mitigate the loss of bone mineral density. Now, muscle mass and function. This concept of sarcopenia. So uh, being of Greek descent, I love my Greek words because everything comes from a Greek word. Sarco meaning flesh, penia meaning loss. And really, this is the life course. So when you're born, you gain muscle mass and strength. It peaks in, in, and stabilizes in your adult life. And this is the, the stage where we focus as geri geriatric care providers in older life, where there's a reduction in function. And the goal really is to minimize this loss, particularly in weight loss efforts. Everybody has a disability threshold. Once you cross that threshold, you, you become disabled, and that becomes obviously a problem on multiple fronts. The goal really is to alter this threshold. 
And environmental changes, uh, such as physical activity measures, resistant measures, can actually alter this threshold and lower the threshold to prevent one from developing sarcopenia. We know that low muscle mass and low muscle strength is related to incident disability, irrespective of obesity. Muscle strength more so than muscle mass, and that's actually been increasingly found, particularly over the last uh, half decade, where muscle strength is much more of a predictor of long-term incident disability. But how about in our patients with obesity? This is a problem. Panel on the left, cross-sectional cut, CT cut of uh, a quadricep muscle. You can see a lot of muscle. Panel on the right, this is an older adult who has infiltration of fat in their muscle, highlighted by all the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the hyper attenuation there. So this infiltration of the muscle that is, is seen in older adults with obesity, and this is what ends up leading to considerable functional decline. This concept of sarcopenia or dynopenic obesity, there's a myriad of terms that are used. I'm going to use the word sarcopenia, is really a confluence of two big problems. Obesity, which is bad. Sarcopenia, which is bad. Put those together, you have a lose-lose combination. And we've actually demonstrated that the, the, uh, the, the combination of high fat mass and either low muscle strength or low muscle mass is associated with uh, both cross-sectionally and longitudinally, associated with adverse outcomes, increased risk of falls, and increased risk of mortality. So this is a big problem in, in our older adult population. So how do you overcome some of these factors? And it's really, it's all about exercise. And this, when you restrict someone's calories in, as an older adult, you want to try to reduce the loss of muscle mass and strength that occurs during the caloric restriction. So we all know 150 minutes of uh, uh, moderate intensity aerobic exercise, and this can be divided in equal, in equal periods if needed. I want to highlight the resistant exercises because this is really what has been really proven to mitigate the loss of muscle mass and strength that occurs uh, not only in aging, population, but also through weight loss efforts. And it's really two to three days a week. You should have a 24 to 48 hour rest period. Rotate your exercise. Start low, go slow. This is the old adage in geriatrics that I can't overemphasize in this population, and that prevents significant number of musculoskeletal injuries. So I put this up, not because I'm a fan of Campbell's Soup, but Patients come to me and say, you know what, doc, I can't afford to buy these free weights or these TheraBands or the like. Well, people have milk jugs, people have soup cans, start low, go slow. And you can get it, you know, you can go outside, particularly with our nice and muddy weather outside right now, and fill up a milk jug, <clears throat> and that, that could be used for your resistance exercises. Simple stuff, low cost, high yield. Or you can get more fancy and get these, you know, ankle and uh, wrist weights. I want to emphasize this study, and this is not unique to older adults with obesity, but this is just unique to older adults. This is the Elder Life Study, which was a large multi-center randomized controlled trial that really identifies the importance of a physical activity program consisting of aerobic and uh, resistance and flexibility training. When patients ask me, what is the key to successful aging? It's this. It's really a lot of this has to do with physical activity. And what they found in a 2.6 year follow-up, that's not a long period of time. Patients who underwent this multi-component program, which is something that easily can be done in a home setting, actually had 18% reduction of disability at follow-up. That's huge. So I really would refer you to this study uh, from a physical function standpoint. And they're extending this data to see a lot more long-term data. And my suspicion is that this is going to be, um, this is the, the, the long-term results are going to be very favorable. So I promised that I was going to come back to protein intake. We know that older adults produce less protein than younger uh, younger patients. So 
you need a large, older adults need a larger amount of protein to really produce the same response in terms of muscle protein synthesis. And a number of older adults actually don't generate, don't re receive adequate protein intake in their diets. Um, I mentioned to uh, work with a registered dietitian, and while we often give protein supplementation in clinical practice, ensure boost or otherwise, there actually has been very little literature in weight loss efforts to determine whether or not supplements actually can be helpful in this population. Um, one study uh, performed by some colleagues of mine down at UNC have done some pilot work using protein supplementation in weight loss efforts and actually has suggested, the preliminary results have suggested improvements in physical function. So, what to do during weight loss efforts? I'm sorry to say there's no real good evidence. So, what I do, I consider a baseline for bone mineral density. Obviously, being attuned and uh, sensitive to Medicare guidelines for, for coverage purposes. There are biomarkers of bone turnover. We don't use them in primary care at this stage, but uh, uh, there's emerging evidence that they can be considered for, to identify bone turnover. Monitoring grip strength. This is my plug to introduce grip strength in people's clinical practice. It takes not even a minute to do. It's a cool device, the dynamometer. Again, another Greek word. Uh, but it's, it provides so much information. And really, it's, it's cheap and it's easy to do. Muscle mass, you can use bioelectrical impedance an analysis. Um, that could be, that's, could be portable and can be used in clinic. But it, again, it's a little bit more labor intensive. There is an ICD-10 code for sarcopenia that's, uh, that has just been released. And that may allow for screening purposes. So stay tuned. Uh, I didn't talk about, much about vitamin D because of time purposes, but this is something else that I monitor in weight loss efforts uh, and ensure adequate supplementation. So some take-home points for case three. Aerobic and resistance. It's not only about aerobic activity. Make sure you have adequate protein, adequate calcium and vitamin D, working with a dietitian, and everything in moderation. Okay, last case. This is... A, a patient that I was referred to me uh, for other other means to kind of manage their their obesity. They, so, a 67 year old complained of memory issues. Husband actually supported uh, the the history. Multiple medical problems, as you can see. She had impairment in function due to sp spinal stenosis. Really, not the greatest family and social support. She was on 14 prescription medications, BMI of 43.3, and said chronic renal insufficiency. So a question that, 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 that's posed to me is, what about pharmacotherapy in our older adult population? We know there are a number of um, FDA-approved medications for obesity management. So I'm sorry to say that both the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology and ACE suggest that there's insufficient evidence to recommend any weight loss medications in their recent consensus statement. And the reason for this is when you look at the randomized trials of all these medications, like usual, a number, uh, the majority of these trials excluded older adults. Their upper limit, of age, uh, their upper limit was 65 years. The only two medications, the fentermine-topiramate combination and loraglutide, these are the only two tr major trials that actually had any semblance of older adults in their, uh, in their RCT, and really amounted to about 7% of their cohort. In that 7%, the efficacy looked very similar, but it really there's insufficient data to, to, to uh, recommend the use of these medications in old, an older adult population. <clears throat> Okay, not meaning to put a whole slew of uh, side effects here, but this is another reason not to consider these medications. A, what's in bold are some of the major side effects that are observed in some of these weight loss and obesity medications, and a lot of these issues that are bolded are standard geriatric syndromes that we see day in and day out in our clinic. So adding the burden of medications with these side effects really leads to uh, problems. So it's yet another reason not to consider them at this time.
stay tuned though. Further data, I'm sure we'll, we'll come and we'll, we'll see where, where, we, where we stand. So what about bariatric surgery? So bariatric surgery is, as we know, um, a, an approved modality for rate reduction when lifestyle measures and pharmacotherapy have failed. So um, Ken Dolcard and I actually uh, wrote a, uh, an opinion paper as to our approach in evaluating uh, patients, older adults, for bariatric surgery. Uh, so this is the pre-bariatric consultation. And what we're doing essentially is a, geriatric, a comprehensive geriatric assessment on these patients. Um, what's in red, they're all important factors. We all we go through them in our assessment. But what's in red really is, in my mind, what is really important. If they have a limited life expectancy, you probably don't want to put them through the surgery. If they have significant cognitive issues, you probably don't want to consider putting them through the surgery. And then there are other frailty and uh, grip strength factors that can be considered. What I feel, and you know, both myself and Ken feel, felt very similarly, speaking for you, Ken, is caregiver support. Extremely important that if while the surgery is, is very well tolerated even in older adults, without adequate post-operative caregiver support, you're set to fail. Also, uh, having uh, delirium in other surgeries you know, prior to this puts you at risk, subsequent risk for developing delirium post-operatively. That's not to say that you should, you should be excluding these patients from consideration, but it's something that needs to be taken in the, in the big picture. So... What do the big guidelines say? So the Europeans have actually come up with a guideline for this and stating that ideally it can be considered. You should really be focusing on physiologic versus chronologic age. Laparoscopic procedures are, um, are ideal. High volume bariatric surgery centers of excellence and you need to be aware of some of these issues. So there, previous studies have, have been fraught with a considerable number of methodological challenges. Power, what are, using age of 55 as an older adult, uh, cut points, definitions. So some of the more recent data is suggesting that this is actually a safe and effective procedure in this population. So some take home points. There's no good evidence base for pharmacotherapy in this population. Bariatric surgery can be considered in selected patients. I would encourage the specialists in the room to really involve PCP geriatricians in decision making and consider physiologic age. So much more important. You can have a 65 year old with, who has multimorbidity and you can have a 90 year, I have a 90 year old who uh, is planning on running the Boston Marathon later this month. Different physiologies. Um, I want to just in the last couple of minutes just kind of share with you some of the exciting work that um, our group is, uh, is, is, is doing now and in, in, uh, over the next couple of years. As uh, Kelly mentioned, I've been funded by uh, NIA for the next, uh, I think we're, having, we're down to four years now, uh, to uh, develop interventions for older adults with obesity. And really what I wanted to develop a, my long-term goal of really improving clinical outcomes in this population. And again, staying away from the number, the weight number, but really focusing on physical function and quality of life. And one of my interests is really in using scalable health promoting devices and technologies uh, to do so. So as part of one of my pilots, this is a small pilot uh, where we gave everybody a Fitbit zip. This is uh, probably uh, one, of, this is one of the very old Fitbits as you can probably see here. But the purpose of this was really had older adults with obesity, gave them a Fitbit, had them come back in a month, and just to see, can they use it? This, is a, this was performed a couple of years ago, but it was a kind of a, a pilot study to, uh, for a submission for my application. And what we found was that it, it actually is feasible and acceptable to older adults with obesity, and particularly in a rural population. So as we, as we know where we live here, can we be using these devices? There was a high satisfaction, and patients loved the activity feedback, the self-monitoring, and the motivation that it provided. So that really kind of took me to the next step to kind of think about, okay, how can I take this further? And I developed 
uh, with, with my team of collaborators, Maui. It's not a beach in Hawaii, uh, unfortunately, but it's a, a mobile health obesity wellness intervention, which really incorporates the standard behavioral exercise uh, nutritional components, but also incorporating technology as part of this intervention. Now, this is an older prototype of Amulet, and I, I want to reach out and thank my collaborators in the Department of Computer Science and the Thayer School of Engineering, who are currently pro uh, developing uh, a prototype uh, called Amulet. This is a mobile health device. What I, I, the term I use is it's a souped-up Apple Watch. May not look like an Apple Watch, but it has a significant more uh, significant more capabilities than an Apple Watch does. It's Dartmouth developed, and it's capable of uh, remote sensing and monitoring, uh, and it has open source programming. And that's this is key from a tech standpoint in that you know the algorithms, you're able to analyze the algorithms and the front end data. And one of the the beauties of this is that we're actually developing applications that are unique to older adults and measuring things like gait speed, sit-to-stand tests, uh, sit-to-stand exercises, and this is really, we're hoping to incorporate this into our project. The other kind of cool thing here is that it'll provide opportunity for incoming and outgoing messaging uh, for uh, behavioral change. And so what we're planning on doing as part of our pilot is really, it's a multi-component intervention where we have uh, our, uh, our physical therapist will deliver a group exercise session twice a week, and there'll be an individual nutritionist who will be delivering a counseling session individually faced, uh, with, uh, with the participants once a week. All this is going to be done remotely, meaning patients are going to be in their homes, they're going to have a tablet and or connected to their TV, uh, and we're going to be using telehealth to deliver this intervention and trying to overcome some of the barriers to uh, rural, uh, rural barriers to transportation and weather that are often seen. Uh, and then we're going to be using Amulet to track patients' activity in the home setting. And, and really, we've developed a Bluetooth-enabled TheraBand, which will be able to provide feedback on uh, muscle strength. And, that'll be, and, and we're going to be monitoring their activity, their steps, and they'll be able to perform sit-to-stand exercises. All this is going to, via Bluetooth, will we'll get fed to the amulet, go to a web server into the cloud, and then be fed back to our uh, study team. This will allow us to provide to-and-fro messaging uh, for behavioral change to our, uh, to our patients. So we're still in the process of developing this, but it's, uh, it's really just wanted to share some of the exciting work that, uh, that our team is, uh, is, is conducting. So we've had a chance to kind of get some preliminary data. Unfortunately, it's not has not been analyzed yet, but we've done a number of focus groups and in, in interviews. Everything's looking promising. Patients are very enthusiastic about this. We're, we're in the process of validating a number of these applications in our older adult population. And uh, my plug-in here is we're starting this summer to recruit for Maui uh, and uh, stay, hopefully be able to get some posters up and uh, We'd encourage everybody's uh, willingness if you have any patients that you think may be uh, eligible. So, my conclusions. So, in addition to BMI, I want you to consider other anthropometric and body composition measures to guide management. Comprehensive weight loss and exercise interventions really do work and not only improve weight, but also physical and mental function and quality of life. But we need to be mindful of sarcopenia and osteoporosis during these efforts. And this is something that's often overlooked. Pharmacotherapy, not quite prime time yet. Bariatric surgery can be considered. And I think there really is a, a promise for novel modalities to encourage behavioral change. But I think there really needs to be also, you know, not only the tech component, but also a human component as well. A lot of collaborators, and I really want to thank uh, I, I'm sure I've probably missed a, a couple up here, but um, this really does take a village, and I wouldn't be where I'm at with, uh, with, our, with our research program, and I have really a great team uh, working, really privileged to be able to share some of this work, uh, but it's, it's folks here, college, and, uh, and afar as well. Uh, and then uh, lastly, my wife's going to kill me, but I really want to thank Nicole and the rest of the family for their support 
uh, for the evenings, weekends, and the like, uh, bearing uh, the 275 versions of my uh, NIH application that she had to review. Um, I wouldn't be here without her. So thank you very much. John, and thanks for giving time for questions. There are plenty. Let's yeah. speak to socioeconomic class. Most providers are in a, in a better place. My, my concern is how, as you're training people who are dealing with people who are both old, frail, and poor, that the process can eliminate condescension in that in, that, in those conversations, and how you help providers deal with that very important, I think, important. So, you know, the question is, if I can try to reframe that, is, you know, dealing with uh, the disparities that are observed in an older, frail, uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged population and overcoming some of the, perhaps, stigma? Would that be fair? Does... Stigma and also, again, you know, John, I've told you what to do. Look, I yep. exercise every day. Why can't you yep. kind of so that, stick to this conversation? Absolutely. So that, you know, that patronizing type of conversation really needs to go. And we know that that is ineffective, does not work. One of the strategies that at least I've been trained in and I've been able to try to impart on, on my own patients, it's not about you as the provider. It's about the patient. There are barriers. And it's really about sitting down with the patient and having a legitimate conversation saying, okay, we know that there's a problem. You don't, I don't need to tell the patient you're at risk of stroke, heart disease, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. They know that at this stage. But what you need to find out is that what is taking baby steps, what is preventing you from doing X? I, you know, what is a barrier? I had a patient the other day is I get hungry at nighttime. Okay, so what is a barrier to that? and you try to identify the barrier and have the patient identify the solution. It's all about the patient trying to figure out what can they do. It's problem sol it's, part of it is problem-solving therapy. Bob. So at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we have about 1,200 or so employees who are over the age of 62. Let's assume for the moment that we, are, we parallel the general population. We have somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of us uh, have a high BMI, yep. I'm not sure where it's at. Now let's assume you are in charge of employee health. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that these folks are uh, at risk for all the various things, mm -hmm. including uh, decreasing function, yep. increasing likelihood of injury at home or at mm -hmm. work. What would you do? Great question. First, I probably wouldn't want to be in that position. <laughs> uh, but hypothetically, if I, if I were, I think, you know, it's always a challenge, I, I, ma I imagine, trying to, you know, folks have their job, but you want to make sure that they remain as func functional as long as possible. Uh, you know, the, the education, of, of course, has to be part of the program, but I think, you know, uh, as I shared with you some of the data there on walking programs, you know, resistant exercise, it needs to be kind of, if we can try to incorporate that as part of the routine day, I think that would provide an opportunity and make us unique, of course, to uh, allow folks to maintain their, their, their function. Tough, you know, from an employee standpoint, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one because there's a lot of, of course, competing factors. Great question. So there's a whole issue in this week's archive, or sorry, JAMA Internal Medicine on <clears throat> testosterone supplementation in older adults, a number of randomized trials. One of them was on uh, the impact of bone mineral density, which we know is favorable. One was on anemia, which can, in those with unexplained fatigue, we know that that can help. Um, some of the earlier trials on muscle mass that was done by Srinair uh, at Mayo uh, actually was, they were, they were unremarkable. 
there are, you have to weigh the risks of testosterone supplementation, particularly in males, with the risks of uh, cancers, heart disease, and pro prostatism. Um, I don't routinely uh, integrate that as part of the, uh, these efforts at this stage. Bruce? Yeah, uh, I was really impressed by the, the temporal trend in obesity, particularly in men, that you showed. Or in 1970, the prevalence of BMI above, above 25 was 10%, and now it's almost 40%. And now you're telling us that the BMI is probably underestimating obesity by a lot. Not sensitive at all, so maybe it's fifty percent. So, what, what do you think? So, so it seems like it's a societal problem. Mm -hmm. Genetically, we're pretty much the same population. So, what, what do you think? This societal factors. Then <laughs> I have some theories, but what do you think about yeah. <clears throat> how we got from a ten percent male male obesity rate in the above sixty-five population to a forty percent? That's a great. That's a great question. You know, so the question is, how do you, how how did we become as a society from like ten percent to forty percent, close to forty percent obesity rate? A um, lot of factors, and you know, there's an actually there's a great infographic that the Obesity Society and I think the, I stand correct, is the uh, the uh, Obesity Medical Medicine Association put together a nice infographic that looked at genetic, environmental, uh, and uh, you know, and uh, iatrogenic causes of obesity. Um, it's, it's so complex. We, and I think part of the challenge here is, you know, there are a lot of environment, the genetic influences which we can't change, there are the environmental influences which we can, which, but it's the interaction that we don't know yet. And th this is, I think, the big challenge, and I'm going to put a plug in for our weight and wellness center, is that we're, as part of our center right now, we're collecting data on all patients. We're hoping to start collecting biological samples to be able to predict, really, who is, the, who is the one who's going to gain the weight, irrespective of the program or not? So these, this interplay and the bi basic biology, we're still in its, its infancy to be able to figure that out, unfortunately. Back, back, I really like your talk. Awesome. Um, I just want to just make a comment, which is, especially in, you know, obesity is hard to tackle, and then obesity in the elderly population um, and when you think about interventions, lifestyle, diet, exercise, all these different things, and monitoring is really important. Um, but when it comes to interventions, you know, not all patients, as you mentioned, are these surgical candidates. And I think that brings up that new developing field of bariatric endoscopy, mm -hmm. and, um, and especially in this type of population. Yep. So as maybe a lot of you guys already know that you know, this double FDA approved devices, um, this issue with accessibility and current coverage issues, but there's balloons, there's the endoscopic sleeve, there's the transpellar shuttle study, which is happening here. And I think that um, that's a potential another avenue to think about, and I think it's going to be important in the future, having close communication with the people at the forefront, mm -hmm. you know, the geriatricians, and uh, communicating closely in a multidisciplinary setting with surgeons and, uh, and uh, endoscopists and the gastroenterologists. And it would be great if we had this center of and and I I would completely agree. The only reason I because they're not FDA approved and you know conflicts you know, CME type talk, but you're absolutely right. I think these are this is an emerging technology, and uh, the at least in a younger population, these uh, devices are very promising. Uh, and you're and you're absolutely right. If it can save some of the uh, morbidity from uh, sur surgical intervention, then you know, this needs to be studied. Absolutely, yep. So why don't we take these just two last yep. questions. I know the hour is late, so Martin and then Rich. Yeah, so when, when people are not physically active, they're doing something else. So what about, like, canceling cable or satellite TV or internet? Uh, uh, has this ever been studied as a weight loss intervention? I mean, it would be low tech, right? And low tech, it's about getting, and it's about getting people out and moving. You know, I. I'm not aware of any any intervention on uh, to to that scale, uh, particularly in this population. But you know, a lot of, there's a lot of low hanging fruit I think that we can we can tackle. What was the suggestion? Canceling internet and cable. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, Rich. Again, what are the measures you use to determine functional health, and which ones do you find respond to things that you 
intervene because again, we're, a lot of our, our language really on our whole attitude is really based on mortality, which is so, um, Rich's uh, qu uh, question comment was a lot of our uh, language is, is based on, uh, is related to mortality and cardiovascular outcomes and cardiometabolic outcomes versus what I was presenting was more functional. So the, that's, a, that's a phenomenal question and the challenge here is, depends on which hat you're wearing. If you're wearing the research hat, if you're wearing the clinical hat. So the researchers like something called the short performance uh, physical battery. Time, a little bit time consuming, not as sensitive to change. Gate speed can be used, grip strength, uh, sit to stand tests, uh, and then you have a lot of the subjective measures. Uh, in clinical practice, unfortunately, we're not, we, we need, we're not in integrating a lot of this. As I said, I think the, the, the lowest hanging fruit in clinical practice to identify function is grip strength. Even in patients with osteoarthritis of the hand, there is significant correlations with lower extremity strength with grip strength. Uh, so that is something that easily can be integrated as a, almost like a sixth vital sign in older, frailer adults. Well, thank you again, Tom. Really yep. for thank you. Thank you for your kind introduction.